Welcome to Spook Pod. This is Courtney. And this is Emily. I can't believe that we made it here. We are recording today our very first episode of Spook Pod. So welcome and thank you so much for joining us. It's been a long time in the works. It has been. Had another pod launch at the same like time <laughs> basically and then we had to scramble around for this one. So yeah. yeah, mostly awkward pod if you want to listen to our other podcast. But yeah, we had two podcasts on the go at the exact same time that we decided to launch at probably the busiest time of our lives. Yeah, too. like honestly, Courtney and I don't ever have anything going on. Like we just work and like come home and have like no life. Yeah. And then we were like and then we were like let's launch a podcast and then all of a sudden it was like all, all of, of these sudden, big changes. Life smacked us in the face. <laughs> so just to summarize, so you know what we're working with here. I just moved. We were building a house for over a year, and we finally got the keys to it at the end of July, but it was an empty shell of a house. So since July, we've been busy painting and putting in floors and getting a kitchen, and we still don't have bathrooms, not to mention the endless amount of problems that have creeped up during this. It's it's been chaos. I'm just living like a little squatter in my shell <laughs> of a home. And then also, I've had company the past three weeks in my shell of a house, but we were traveling too. We went to England and Germany and around the Netherlands, and I was still working full time during all of this, and Emily just started a new job. Yeah, transitioning into that and trying to train new people, and it's the first job transition I've really had in about 13 years, so uh, that was interesting to say the least (laughs) yeah and then we were like okay let's release two podcasts during all of this yeah just throw it out there (laughs) and then i went down never-ending rabbit holes on the case that we are covering today and over the next few episodes which is of course the case of natalie holloway i think the majority of people here listening have probably heard of the case of natalie holloway but just to summarize in case you haven't in may of 2005 Natalie Holloway was 18 years old when she went on a five-day high school graduation trip to the small island of Aruba with 124 other classmates. On her final night there, she went to a bar called Carlos and Charlie's in the downtown area of Aruba. When the bar closed, she left with three Aruban locals. They drove off, and she was never seen again. Her parents were informed when she didn't arrive for the shuttle that would take her and her classmates to the airport. It's been 17 years now, and as of 2022, Natalie has never been found. But before we get deep into the storyline of this case, I just wanted to share my journey of researching this case. Um, I think it's really important how people research and the sources that they use and what they look at. Uh, If you don't know anything about this case, you maybe at least know that it was a media forensi. In fact, this was the number one reported news story of 2005, and it still made the top 10 in 2006. It made headlines all over the world, and it still does today if any new piece of information pops up. 
Emily, do you remember seeing anything on it when it happens? So not immediately when it happened, because I would have been in high school still. And I can honestly say I had no idea. But when I was in university, I, I think that there was maybe a development or something. And there was news coverage on that that I definitely remember hearing about. But yeah, the initial one, I, I de- yeah, skip right over me. I don't really watch the news, though, so I'm not a great person to bounce <laughs> that off of. I'm fairly oblivious to like current affairs. <laughs> Um, I actually do remember seeing this. I remember seeing it all over the magazines at the grocery store when I went there. So yeah, even in Canada growing up, I was 14 or 15 at the time that this was really big on the news. And I remember seeing it. I remember Natalie's face being plastered all over the magazines. I remember thinking it was so awful what happened to her, but also not fully grasping the nuance of it at that age because This is a really unique case, I think, in the sense that it was an American and a young girl who went missing on a small island on her high school graduation trip. You know, it's not something that we hear of very often. And I think that like at that age, there's very few of us who do a lot of traveling when we're when we're that young. And to understand like the size of Aruba and what it actually meant to like fully disappear on an island that size where literally everyone pretty much knows everyone like you're not really understanding that that destination is that small yeah and we'll go deeper into that too because it is really crazy what happened um but in doing this case for our pod i really really want more than anything to do this case justice in the sense that i want to report on it well because Justice is not something that was readily available in this case, and it's really unfortunate. But on the same token, this was a really ambitious case for me to choose for our first case. It has been so much research. This is taking me so long to look at everything. I think I went a little bit too deep in it. I was like, I want to read every single article on the internet about this. And she kept messaging me like, what if I read this book? And what do you think about this book? And I was just like, man, this is your baby. (laughs) You got to make it go. (laughs) But really, when it actually comes down to it, there's not a lot known to the public about this case. And so many things have been twisted and turned by rumor mongers or the press. So it's, it was really hard for me to tease out fact versus fiction in this case. Uh, But luckily, I love me some heavy research, and I really tried to get to the bottom of everything. So I'm only going to discuss things in this podcast if I found them from trustworthy sources or from more than one reputable source in particular. If it was one random news article that said one random thing that I didn't see anywhere else, uh, it's probably something that I left out. That being said, though, I'm sure I've made mistakes in here, and I'm very open to feedback and critiques and corrections. So if anyone has anything for me along those lines, just send an email my way at thespookpod at gmail.com, and I will be sure to fix anything that wasn't factual. My sources in this case consisted of both of Natalie's parents' books, uh, Beth and Dave, their books, and a lot of never-ending news articles. I did look for court documents and police reports from Aruba as well. Those are things that were not very accessible. I think Aruba didn't really release a lot, except for in the case of press conferences or things like that, which then the news then picked up. 
But as we may come to see, some of these things from Aruba might not even be trustworthy or taken via proper procedures or procedures that we're used to, at least. Well, I was going to say, like, again, you're dealing with the difference between North American policing and Aruban policing, which, I mean, you lived there for a bit. You know that their laws are completely different and sometimes not as strict as what we have in North America. Yeah. There were also some sources that I steered away from. Um, I steered away from anything that was heavily criticized by Natalie's parents. To me, Natalie's parents just want answers in this case, of course. So if they were heavily criticizing something, to me, that's a solid reason that this is something that's out there to just make money off of this story or to exploit the suffering of Natalie's family. And they don't seem to actually care about getting to the truth. For example, there was a documentary um, that I think Natalie's mother is either in current or past legal battles with for that reason, that this documentary lied to her and used her suffering and desperation to find her daughter as a way to profit for the show. And that's really a no bueno for me. So I steered clear of anything like that. I don't want them to receive any more money at the expense of Natalie's family. Another source I didn't look at, and I kind of went back and forth on this one, was um, one of the main suspects in this case, which I'll name him later, he wrote a book on this as well. And at first I was going to read it, but then I didn't for a couple reasons. First of all, I don't want him to receive any money for this, of course. I don't know where the proceeds go for this book, but if they would in any way help him, I did not want that. I also read the reviews of the book and they were really bad. <laughs> and then considering the fact that this guy is an absolute asshat and he has told upwards of 22 different stories, I'm sure that this book would just be that. It would just be another one of his stories where he victim blames and he tries to take the attention off of him. So I didn't really want to ra waste my time. So he was, he was doing a Chris Watts situation where he just <laughs> changes the story every three months and, you know. Yeah. Well, he was even worse than Chris Watts. But you'll see when we get into it. It's insane. His stories, they're just so stupid and gross. And I, I hate him. His book is also only available in Dutch, which is fine for me. I can read Dutch okay. Uh, but it would definitely take me longer than normal if I was reading a book in my native English. So anyways, I did not read that book. But when it comes down to it, when you try to get to the truth of all the news articles and the media tabloids and everything about this case, it really is actually quite a simple case. And I don't mean simple as in it's solvable. I don't think anyone would say that this case is simple in, in that sense. I'm sure Natalie's family would not describe this case as simple. I just mean um, that the actual facts known in this case, there's just a few of them. Natalie went missing in the span of only a couple of hours. That's it. And then everything that blew up after that has just been this huge, massive tor tornado of hellfire, essentially, this media frenzy of the case and the facts. Which probably did more to harm the case than anything. Like, when you get that much media attention... There's only so much police can actually do to, to work Always. around that. Yeah, it's such a double-edged sword because you want the media attention so that you can, if there's someone out there who has some information that they will come forward, if they see 
all the media about it, but yeah, it the media does definitely the media ultimately is in it for for listens and views and so it really is a double-edged sword. And everything that has happened in the aftermath of this case, it's brought out literally every single theory that you could ever think of. Everything that could possibly be said about Natalie has been said somewhere on the internet. But we are not here for fact-spinning, we're here for truth. So that is what we're trying to cover. There's also a couple reasons why I wanted to cover this case first. The idea behind SpookPod, if you didn't listen to our trailer, is that I'm Canadian-born, and then I moved to Aruba. I lived there for two years, and I ultimately ended up in the Netherlands. So this case feels like a case that bridges a lot of gaps for me. Um, I'm also really passionate about true crime, and I roped Emily into doing this true crime podcast with me. We originally we originally were just going to do one podcast. It was going to be nice. <laughs> it was going to be easy. And we were like, maybe we won't do true crime because like, a lot of people do it. And that's that. And so we did a completely different concept for our Mostly Awkward pod. And then, like, what, a week, two weeks into that, Courtney messages me and she's like, you're going to hate me. <laughs> I want to do another podcast. <laughs> I want to do another podcast. And I was like, you know what? We're doing them for fun. So let's do yeah, it. And exactly. then, uh, yeah, so Pod was formed. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not just going to be on true crime here. We're also going to talk about legends and ghost stories and the spooky side of the Netherlands. But since... Yeah, y'all have some y'all have some weird stuff that I've been looking into <laughs> that we're going to have a little chat about later on because I'm... It doesn't exist in other parts of the world. Um so yeah, get buckle up for that. Buckle up. Yeah, as I get to know this country, I I want to know this side of it as well. So that stuff stuff like this has always interested me. I mean, I, I mean, I have a master of science degree in psychology and health science, and I've always been enthralled by the human mind and the way it works and what causes people to do the things they do, etc. So Without going too deep into it, um, I really thought that Natalie Holloway case was something that kind of bridged a lot of things together for me. So as I mentioned, I lived in Aruba for two years. That's where this crime took place. So all of the places that they talk about in this case, I have physically been to. Of course, many years later, but I know where these places are. I know what they look like. I know how far they are in reference to other places. And I also know the general vibe of what it's like in Aruba. And my boyfriend, uh, he's a Dutch Marine who I met while he was stationed on the island of Aruba. So for those who don't know, Aruba doesn't have its own military. It's the Dutch military that protects and works on the island. And of course, the Dutch Marines played a hand in the search for Natalie Holloway. My boyfriend is trained specifically in driving boats. So he has a lot of knowledge of the waters of Aruba and the tide and the currents and I think that's really pertinent to this case. And then this case also, of course, impacted the Dutch a lot. Once we get into it, it is a Dutch man that is one of the main suspects. Um, Aruba also follows Dutch laws. And because Aruba was once a Dutch colony, there is still a very heavy influence uh, of the Dutch over the island of Aruba. Yeah, I was going to say, like, you, you should maybe, like, yeah, let everybody know that Aruba, while it is, like, the country of Aruba, is is technically a constituent country of the Kingdom of the Netherlands. So it's very heavily tied to the Netherlands, and that's why you're seeing all of this Dutch presence and and Dutch people involved in this case. Yeah, and a lot of people that work higher-up jobs in Aruba, such as 
in the police force, in the hospital, in the government, a lot of them are Dutch. So, and Aruba doesn't have a lot of resources. So the forensic testing that happened in this case actually happened in the Netherlands, for example. Um, I will go into a bit more detail about this later. And first and foremost, really, Natalie has never received justice for what happened to her. Her family deserves answers. It's been 17 years. Natalie would be turning 36 this year on October 21st, so we're approaching that date. And I just think it's insane that there's no answers in this case. And here's the thing. Natalie could be any single one of us. She could be any of our sisters or daughters. She could be me. Like, I actually have so much in common with Natalie that I think it's kind of crazy. She was four years older than me, but she was going off to university to study pre-med and she had a full scholarship. I also studied pre-med and had scholarships. I also went on a high school graduation trip. Mine was to the Dominican Republic, but I did live in Aruba for two years as a young female. And we even kind of look alike. We're both blondes. So I think this case really just reminded the world that this can happen to anyone. And we want to see justice for Natalie and closure for her family. Okay, so let's get into it. Are you ready, Emily? Yeah, I'm strapped in. We're good to go. I got some tea. Let's get it. (laughs) So this is the unsolved disappearance of Natalie Holloway. Natalie Ann Holloway was born on October 21st, 1986 to parents Beth and Dave Holloway in Memphis, Tennessee. That makes her a Libra, by the way. A couple years later, her brother Matthew joined the mix. In 1993, when Natalie was about six years old, Natalie's parents divorced, and her and her brother lived with their mother, and their father shared custody, seeing them every other weekend. In 2000, Natalie got a new stepfather when her mother married George Twitty. He is called Jug, so we're going to call him Jug here in this episode, too. Natalie was the pride and joy of her parents. She loved the Wizard of Oz and had a collection of memorabilia. She was a great dancer. Not to mention, she's absolutely stunning. She's just a gorgeous, gorgeous girl. If you've seen pictures of her, you know. Her mom describes her as an all-around success story. This is a quote from her mother, Beth's book. She made friends easily. She made straight A's. She made the National Honor Society. When she needed a higher ACT score, she set her sights on a five-point improvement and achieved it. Natalie took pride in her volunteer work for Habitat for Humanity, the Humane Society, and Hope Lodge. At Hope Lodge, she visited regularly with a 13-year-old cancer patient. Natalie did everything on her own. She was totally independent. I never had to wake her up for school, never had to get onto her for not doing what she was supposed to do. Natalie applied to colleges and applied for scholarships on her own. She arranged for housing and roommates from the time she was a little girl she took charge of her own responsibilities. So this girl was a powerhouse. I'm yeah, so like, proud honestly, of her. Yeah, like honestly, waking up without your mom telling you to is never something I have achieved. Like even, <laughs> I mean, like now I have my alarm that tells me to, but like I, I never, my sister would literally come into my room and pick up things off my desk and whip them at me to make me wake up <laughs> because I just like, I did not get up in the mornings. So yeah, that alone is yeah. like standing ovation natalie had a lot going for her she was beautiful smart and honor student she had big plans she was a member as beth said of the national honor society she was on the dance squad and she participated in a number of extracurricular activities 
She was ranked 25th in her class of about 300 students, and that was with a 4.17 GPA on a 4.0 scale. She was awarded the President's Scholarship at the University of Alabama, as well as a couple other scholarships. She reminds me of Elle Woods, just badass, just going through her life like, what? Like, it's hard? Everything she tackled, she excelled at. So on May 24th, 2005, Natalie Holloway was just your typical teenager. In fact, that day was her graduation from Mountain Brook High School in Alabama. Her entire family was in attendance. Natalie even secured extra tickets so everyone could come by asking other students if they had any tickets they didn't need. She got to wear special ribbons on her graduation gown that signified that she was an honor student and she was really proud of them. Her family cheered for her as her name was called and she walked across the stage. She was 18 and she had her entire life ahead of her. She wanted to be a pediatrician and she was scheduled to attend the University of Alabama that fall on a pre-med track. Everything was lined up for her, and in two days, on May 26th, she would leave for her high school graduation trip to Aruba. She asked her parents if she could attend the high school graduation trip, and of course, they let her go celebrate with their classmates. She'd done so well in school, and she really deserved this. And this was also an annual tradition that the school had. So Natalie and her family knew many people who'd been on this trip before, and they knew many people going on the trip this year, too. So it was going to be five days long from May 26th to May 30th, 2005. There was going to be about 125 students going along and seven chaperones as well. The chaperones weren't there to keep up with every move of the kids or anything like that. They wouldn't do roll call or bed checks, uh, but they would meet with the students every day to make sure that everything was fine and they would help with any emergencies. And honestly, to me, this is so normal. I went on basically the exact same graduation trip. It was seven days to the Dominican Republic. A whole bunch of us went. And when we got there, there was a whole bunch of people from other high schools too that were graduating. It was the same thing. We had chaperones, but they were just kind of there, you know, if we needed anything. And this is such a normal thing to send your kid on. And and by the time that they went on this trip, the majority of them were 18 as well. So they're legally adults. Natalie was 18. I'm sure it was nerve-wracking for her parents to send her out on a trip like this. But she was also an adult, and you have to let people live their lives. Honestly, when I went to Spain, I'm pretty sure I went to Spain in 2005, and I was three years younger than Natalie. And I'm pretty sure we went for, like, nine days or something to Spain so like these trips are not unusual I mean my Spain trip was during the school year and so it was a little more regimented because it wasn't a graduation trip like we did have to be in the hotel at a certain time we did have to like take call of everyone who was there but in general like we got to go out and just wander around Spain during that time and yeah and, and you weren't even an adult at yeah that time, like I was right? like 15 16 it, like I wasn't that old and so this is not something strange yeah and on my trip, personally, I was still 17 because uh, I was born later in the year. Because you're a baby. Um, <laughs> but there was still a lot of drinking, a lot of partying on my trip. And I participated in that even as a 17-year-old. So, And people act like, they'll say stuff like it's bad in the sense that I really can't stand when people do any kind of victim blaming in this situation. People are allowed to go on vacation, to party, to let loose, and to make it home that night, you know? 
There's no one at fault except for anyone that decides that they have the right to harm another human being. So no victim blaming will be had in this episode. Thank you very much. Yes, totally agree. You you are absolutely entitled to let go every once in a while. And this is like, obviously, this girl in particular did her hardest in school and to succeed and to excel and clearly was not going out every night drinking and partying and messing up her life. And she went on a trip that was supposed to be this like time in her life to let that out. And this should not have happened. As simple as that. Yeah. Uh, Natalie's mom, Beth, described two moments of apprehension that she had uh, before Natalie went on this trip. So the first, it was a former Mountain Brook student who had returned from his trip to Aruba two years prior. And he told Beth about an experience he had at a popular nightclub called Carlos and Charlie's, where some locals were trying to get a couple of his female classmates to leave with them. And this kind of scared Beth. Secondly, Beth was actually at a beach house visiting family while Natalie was on vacation. And Beth found like a drink hugger on the table. You know, those little coaster things you put over a beer bottle, I think. Like a can cozy kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And she felt compelled to pick it up and look at it. And in small green letters, it said Carlos and Charlie's. And she describes this powerful force that ran through her as she read it. And she dropped the the drink hugger as if it was burning hot. So she believes that this was a premonition. But Natalie did deserve this time to celebrate with her friends, so Beth allowed her to go on the trip. She dropped Natalie off at her friend's house in the early morning hours of May 26, 2005, and describes the scene. Quote, She replied, Bye, Mom. Love you, and slung her purple duffel bag over her shoulder. The bag made her walk slightly bent to its opposite side. As I got back in the car, she made her way up the long driveway to the front door. Turning the car around, I stopped and looked back over my shoulder to see her go inside. The front door of the house opened just wide enough for her to slip in. I saw her silhouette in the beam of light that shone from inside. The light narrowed as the door closed, then disappeared completely. It was pitch black again. I drove away not knowing that that would be the last time I would ever see Natalie. She was on her way to Aruba. So before we continue with the story, I just want to take the time to set the scene in Aruba. We have mentioned it a little bit, but if you don't know where Aruba is, it's in the Caribbean. So it's essentially a short flight, about three hours, southeast of Miami from the United States. It sits actually directly above and very close to Venezuela in South America. It's only 20 miles from Venezuela beach to beach. Aruba is one of the three islands that are very close to each other, known as the ABC Islands. Um, They were all Dutch colonies at one point. The other two are Bonaire and Curaçao. But Aruba did leave the Netherlands Antilles and became independent in 1986. So when you think about it, that wasn't that long ago. That was actually the same year that Natalie was born that Aruba became independent. And there's so much involved. I'm not going to go too deep into it, but a country like Aruba gaining its independence, you know, after it's been colonized, there is so much woven into that, you know, like they lose a lot of resources at the same time of gaining their freedom, but it generally means that it takes some time for them to build up their own policies and procedures on how to do things. So 
I think that this is something that we saw in this case. Aruba is really a kind of baby country. And it's tiny. It's tiny, tiny, tiny. It doesn't even have postal codes or zip codes or anything because it's so tiny. Uh, it's 33 kilometers long and 9 kilometers wide. And it has an area of about 193 square kilometers. Uh, in miles, that's 21 miles by 6 miles. So that's small. That is very very small. And because it's so small, everyone really does know everyone there. I think the population is only around 100,000 people. And when I lived there, it really does seem like a community where everybody knows everybody and everybody knows everybody's business. Like sometimes um, when people hear I'm Canadian, they'll be like, oh, do you know Frank from Canada? And I'm like, uh, no. <laughs> but if you- Not if he lives in BC, I don't, because that's a far way away. <laughs> But if you did that to an Aruban, I actually think that they really would know, or at least they would know Frank's brother or Frank's father or something like that. Uh, the official languages that they speak in Aruba are Dutch and Papiamento, but locals usually also speak Spanish and English. So basically everyone on the island grows up speaking four languages, and that's badass. Papiamento is the island language, and it's mostly spoken just on the ABC islands. It's a Creole language, so... It's a mixture of Spanish, Dutch, and Portuguese. I only know a few words, but from what I've heard about it, uh, the language only has about 900 words in total. And usually a word for something is the first one that appeared on the island. So for example, the word for sneakers is Keds. Keds being the first brand that showed up on the island, I guess. That's so strange because Keds is like not, I mean, it's a big brand, but it's also like not the biggest. Not like Nike or something. Yeah. So you would be like, that's strange that Keds is the one that was like, go to Aruba. Yeah. <laughs> Get those people. <laughs> and tourism is obviously very big in Aruba. It's their main source of income and it's the majority of people's livelihoods. So because of that, tourism is very sacred to Arubans. Like you don't fuck with the you don't fuck with the tourists. You don't fuck with the tourism. They put it first. And if anything is bringing tourism down, that basically becomes Aruba's top priority to deal with. They don't want anything to be a black mark against them when it comes to tourism. Which is honestly why COVID was just like so hard on yeah. islands and not only Aruba, but islands like Aruba too that do rely so heavily on, on tourism to have that taken away is just... Yeah, it, it kind of essentially becomes like, do we shut down the island to save some people or but if we shut down the island everyone loses their job you know so it it kind yeah. of becomes yeah i know it's a difficult a difficult situation there but honestly for the most part like aruba is beautiful i love it it's a beautiful country the people there are so friendly it's great it's safe i have never once felt unsafe there actually as living there as you know like a young single female it also has great health care for its citizens it it really is a wonderful place and this case as we will come to see will not always show the best side of aruba it will probably leave you with questions of corruption and incompetence and wondering the root cause of it all but aruba really does hold a special place in my heart it's where I met some of my best friends. It's where I met the love of my life. But let's explore deeper so you can get a better sense of it. 
So for the first days of Natalie's trip, it was probably what you would think would happen on a high school trip. People were drinking and gambling and having fun. Natalie was with her friends at the beach, at the resort, at the bars. They stayed at the Holiday Inn in Aruba, and they met other people there too. One of the people they met, as he claimed, was 19-year-old Joran van der Sloot, who was visiting Aruba on holiday from the Netherlands. He spent time at the casino at the Holiday Inn called the Excelsior. The Holiday Inn, it's found on Palm Beach in Aruba, and today this is the main tourist spot on the island. So it's like a long white sand beach on the western coast, and it is where all the high-rise hotels are on the island. They all sit in a nice little row along this beach. And all beaches in Aruba are public, so hotels don't own any of the beaches. So when you're staying at one of these resorts, you can really make your way along this beach really easily and hang out wherever you please. It has a lot of bars and little restaurants and little tourist spots on it too. Uh, if you are walking along the beach from the Holiday Inn and going north along the beach, you pass by a lot of other big hotels. So there's the Marriott, the Ritz, and then after the Ritz, there's this area called the Fisherman's Huts. And it's right at the end of these big high-rise hotels. The Ritz actually wasn't, uh, it's one of the biggest resorts in this area, but it opened in 2013, which means it wasn't there when Natalie went missing. And which also means I've never seen Aruba without this gigantic hotel. So it's kind of hard for me to picture the Ritz not being there. But it means that this Fisherman's Huts area was a lot bigger uh, before the construction started of the Ritz. So the fishermen's huts, I don't really know how to describe them. They're kind of just like, they're not what they sound like. There's no fishermen there. They're just like kind of where people hang out. They're like little shelters on the beach. And there's a little spot to put boats in the water there too. And actually when I lived in Aruba, I would teach sup yoga in this exact spot. So I would drive my truck with my trailer with my sup boards on it. And I would park it there. I would unload it. I'd put the boards in the water right in front of these fishermen's huts, and that's where I would teach. And this is also where a lot of people kite surf. If you go kind of directly inland from Palm Beach, there's an area called Nord. And Nord is a pretty popular residential area, so many people on the island live here. And it's actually where I lived in Aruba too. So there's a lot of the classic Aruban houses. They're called Kunuku houses and they're found in this area behind Palm Beach. And then from Palm Beach, if you continued down along the western coast of Aruba, you would make your way into Oranjestad. This is the capital of Aruba. I put that in like air quotes because to me, everything in Aruba kind of seems to blend together because it's so tiny. But Oranjestad is the capital. It's the main downtown area of the island. And this is where the cruise ships dock, uh, there's a lot of shopping here. There's some other smaller hotels. The government is here. Um, and this is also where the popular bar Carlos and Charlie's was. So on Natalie's final night in Aruba, her and her friends were planning on visiting Carlos and Charlie's. They were in the casino of their hotel where they found Joran van der Sloot, And in some way or another, they discussed their plans about the bar that they would go visit that night. In Natalie's hotel room, she left her luggage neatly packed with her passport sitting on top. She brought with her to the bar her driver's license and 
She was wearing a jean skirt and a green, white, and blue patterned tank top. Her and her friends would need to take a taxi to get to this bar. Uh, It was probably about a 15-minute taxi drive from their hotel. But they made it, and they were having a good night. And Yoran and his friends also made it to the bar that night. At 1.30 a.m., the bar closed, and a flock of people rushed outside to find a taxi. Natalie's friend saw her leaving in a car with three other individuals, Joran Vandersloot, who was actually an Aruban local and who was 17 at the time, not a tourist and not 19, as he claimed, and his two friends were with him, Deepak Kalpo and his brother Satish Kalpo, who also lived in Aruba but were originally from Suriname. Natalie told her friends she was getting a ride back to the hotel. She yelled, Aruba! loudly as the car drove away. This was the last time that any trace of Natalie was ever seen. Since that moment, not a single shred of evidence that directly links to Natalie has ever been found. Not her driver's license or any of the clothes she was wearing, or of course her. It's literally as if she disappeared into thin air. But why did this happen? How did this happen? How could nothing be found of Natalie at all on an island that is literally... 33 kilometers by 9 kilometers. Why do we not have any consistent real statements from the people who were last seen with her? And why do we not even know where to look? What happened to Natalie Holloway? So we're going to dive into this, but it's going to wait until part two. So in the next episode, we're going to dive into the search for Natalie Holloway, the suspects, the stories, the false leads, what it all uncovered, and what it did not. Emily, how you feeling? A little shooketh that <laughs> she's just poof into dis- disappeared into thin air. Yeah, it's crazy. And that's where we leave it. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I'm excited for the next episode. I'll say that much. I don't have to wait nearly as long as everyone else does, though, so that's <laughs> exciting. Yeah, all right. So just before we dip, I just want to say again, thank you for being here for our very first episode of Spook Pod, and we hope you come back for part two. See you later. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes of Spook Pod. New ones are out every Friday. Available now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to chat? Email us at thespookpod at gmail.com or follow us on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit at SpookPod. For a full list of episodes, more deets, or to see what's coming next, visit our website, spookpod.com. This has been a presentation of Mostly Awkward Media. See See you next week. week!